It's episode 25 of G.I. Joe Book. We celebrate our quarter century of episodes. Yeah! Wow, that's amazing. Woo-hoo-hoo. Congratulations, boys. Woo-hoo-hoo. It's a 25-hit combo. <laughs> it only took us, what, two years to get to this point, but we're 25 episodes in and the fun just keeps on coming. <laughs> it does. <laughs> I, love, I love Rob's take on the excitement there. It does. Well... <laughs> This is a very exciting episode, and I'm kind of revved to do it. We've been bitching about G.I. Joe's cinematic exploits for quite some time now. Firstly, there was that POS called ROC, Rise of Cobra, which got our backs up. Then there was Retaliation, which didn't exactly tickle our oysters. Mm, tickled my oyster a little. <laughs> a bit more than what? Or Steven's. Okay, but... We do a lot of bitching, and yet we don't really throw anything into the cauldron. Any sort of suggestions, perhaps. So this episode is our movie pitch episode, where the G.I. Joe Bird lads decide to give some idea of what their ideal G.I. Joe movie would be. Put our money where our mouth is, so to speak. You know, uh, know, everybody's like, if you can't do better, then you shouldn't say anything. So this is our way of trying to do it better. Yeah, because of course, fanboys, you know, we are the most ideal people to ask about <laughs> movie ideas. We know exactly what it takes to like make a big budget smash up. I'm just being facetious. <laughs> Bottom line is the three of us have kind of mulled this over for some time and uh, we'd like to share our ideas on what we'd like to see in a G.I. Joe film. Or what we think might make for a great Joe movie. As opposed to a movie which doesn't really ring true as a G.I. Joe movie, I don't know. I mean, Rise of Cobra and Retaliation were, in my mind, not cognizant of what G.I. Joe is, most of the time. They kind of harped on cliches and didn't use the rich tapestry that was G.I. Joe. They made great strides to make standalone movies that I suppose someone who isn't a G.I. Joe expert can digest and enjoy. And there were a few Easter eggs for the fans. But I think that, for me personally, there's so much good stuff that you can draw upon that a G.I. Joe movie should just write itself. Well, with me, though, like I don't have any specific idea of what I want. I mean, I don't have like a story that I want to see on the screen. It's more like stuff that I would love to see in a Joe film and stuff I would really hate to see in a Joe film. Ooh, cool. So... <laughs> I'll start with what a G.I. Joe live-action adaptation film should not have. For me, like, the biggest thing it really shouldn't have is kind of like a storyline that follows, like, a rookie. Because G.I. Joes aren't rookies. They're experts, you know, they're specialists, they know what they're doing. I don't think we need that in, into the world. You know, a rookie character, like, oh, here's Duke, he's brand new to the team, you know. And I just found that kind of insulting, like trust your audience to understand that these guys are the best of the best and just go with that you know because that's what G.I. Joe are they're the best to cut the comic actually the many Navy SEALs and uh, a lot of branches of the American military try to join G.I. Joe and upon hearing some of the things that some of the trials have to undergo they actually get scared off just want to have listeners understand if you don't know this most of the branches if not all of the branches in the US military are hardcore the training is hardcore and it is scary if there's something that scares them then you know it's hardcore to be in G.I. Joe, okay? <laughs> this is coming from Larry Hummer, who was in the military himself. <laughs> so, yes, I agree with what you're saying there, totally. And I would agree with you, Paul, hmm? if I didn't have a problem with 
the other branches of the United States armed forces to having an awareness of G.I. Joe. Mm. To my mind, it's something that you are very secretively tapped for without knowledge of its existence. That would be the optimal modus operandi for the G.I. Joe force. It's not something that is common knowledge. And that's that flies in the face of what uh, the films sought to depict, and it even flies in the face of what Laurie Harmer started to depict. Yeah. He made it seem like G.I. Joe was becoming another branch of the, the United States military machine. A lot of the earlier G.I. Joe reads a lot like James Bond, in a way. Very clandestine, very secret, very... And they've reintroduced that mm-hmm. in IDW's G.I. Joe run. Sorry, so that's a step yeah, in the right before they took them public, though, in the recent issues. Yeah, it's secret and no rookies. And then some of the other points, like I, I don't want it to focus on Cobra Law. Like, I think I've had enough of that in the animated movie. <laughs> not, uh, I, not stepping I, I on any toes there, Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know that you guys love Cobra Law, and, you know, I suppose seeing a film with techno-organic technology would be amazing, but for me, I don't want to see that in a movie. The same goes for it shouldn't be too sci-fi or too high-tech. I mean, if I could, I'd like it to be set, you know, either back in the 80s with the sort of equipment that they had back then, more than something set today. Because I think back then, like, having this special unit, I don't know. It was just very cool, you know, and that time period as well. It's nice to have it in that time period when it, you know, it originated from. Yeah, Mm. it's it's kind of like how James Bond has lost a lot of his relevance because when James Bond was written and when the films were coming out, having gadgets like lasers in your watches and having um, helicopters that you could assemble in, like, 30 minutes, you know, flying over great bodies of water with, like, a gyrocopter and a car that had missiles and stuff is really cool. It's really novel. Today, it's not really novel because we live in, in an information age where GPS I can get on my phone for free and I can look up information on anything. I can find out anything I need to know. And the world doesn't need you having lasers in your watches. I mean, if you do, okay, that's kind of novel. But a lot of James Bond's novelty has worn off, you know, as it's gotten more modern. And it's become very much about him as a character. And it's the same thing that I think what G.I. Joe would suffer from, is that if it was too technologically focused, it would lose a lot of that as it got more modern. Because the need for that kind of special team of special things wouldn't be as necessary as, or wouldn't be as cool as a bunch of really hardcore, smart people who are very good at doing certain things. Which is what essentially G.I. Joe is about. It's about a bunch of really gifted soldiers. And don't lose sight of the fact that James Bond, of late is no longer set against the backdrop of the Cold War. Exactly. You know, that was a, the golden era of spycraft. Now it's kind of a war on terror and a kind of a very individual war against a, a super baddie. It wasn't this, you know, this great playing up of superpowers and the intrigues that a spy caught in the middle would have. That's the point that I'm hugely in favour with, Rob, that G.I. Joe, a G.I. Joe movie could gain a lot by being a period piece, by being set in the early 80s. It also makes it more interesting when you see Cobra has some interesting stuff. You know, it's kind of like they have an edge technologically over a lot of other people. And Cobra can still have all that stuff. It just makes it more interesting to see them having it in the 80s, I think. So what else don't I want to see? Yeah, I don't want to see Serpentor. I prefer... Agreed. Like, Serpentor's cool, but keep it focused on Cobra Commander. I mean, he's the leader of... Cobra, he needs to be the guy in charge. And I definitely want to see a very strong, very in-charge Cobra Commander. Not a guy who has schemes thrust upon him and stuff. Yeah, He's leading it, he knows what he wants. 
the big difference between Serpento and, and Cobra Commander is Cobra Commander is a, a fanatic that's been created by society. Things have happened, and he's felt that he needs to take revenge on society for these things that have happened to him. So he starts a military faction or a paramilitary group, and he wants to pretty much overthrow the world or overthrow the governments and have complete control. Serpento is a, uh, a dictator made in a bottle that has a lot of makings of like a really bad B-movie sort of superhero or supervillain, and just because of all of this, he has some kind of right to be a leader, and to me, it's fine in the cartoons, you know, it's a great thing for a cartoon to have a character like that, it's not a great thing to have a character like that in general, I think Serpentor is really odd, he has nothing that he fights for, he's got no cause, he's got no actual belief in anything, except for himself and how great he is. And, you know, that's it. Because, you know, he has all of this genetic knowledge and whatever. And I really love Cobra Commander in the sense that he is actually like any of us. If the wrong one of us got pissed off, you know, it happens. There are people out there who have started these paramilitary groups, have tried to throw coups, some have couped governments and things like that. And these guys are very much like what Cobra Commander was. It's a very natural mm. symptom of society, of, of humanity, actually. And that's why I like Cobra Commander, because he kind of reflects us. Well, I'll just yes, add that so yes, I'm in favor yeah. of I am in favor of no Commander over Serpentor anytime. <laughs> but another thing, like okay, I'm not sure exactly what story I want for a GI Joe film, but I know that I don't want it to be kind of a renegade sort of like GI Joe on the run film. Yeah. Like I want them to be. They are a military group. They're part of the government, a secret organization, but they're not under threat from you know the authorities. They're doing their thing and. They don't have to be threatened for the story to be more interesting, and we've seen enough of that type of story, yeah. you know, in in yeah, the, in the cartoon and then in the second film, you know, where like everyone wants to kill them. Yeah, well, you kind of get the feeling that everybody wants to kill them, but you don't really feel it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree with that totally. I mean, we want to watch a movie where we got these guys that have actually got an edge, you know. We want to see people that have a real edge go up against an enemy that has a serious edge. And we would like to see how that sort of goes together. Not, you know, oh, they've been stripped. They don't have any of their cool gear or any of their cool stuff. And now there's like five of them and they have to survive. No, and yet we never feel like they're really in danger. Yes. You're absolutely mm. right, Paul. <laughs> you hit the nail on the head there, buddy. Retaliation, yeah, retaliation. suffers retaliation. from the yeah. stakes just never being stacked against them. It seems like they have an ally with a fully stocked house of guns and some veteran buddies. And they're set to take on Cobra's entire legion. And they're fine with that. They're cool. <laughs> they can do it. They're not scared or anything either. It's they can organize a hit on the president at some <laughs> event. That's a doable thing for a handful of disgruntled ex-soldiers. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, this is not a yeah. retaliation, <laughs> criticism. retaliation criticism session. Forum. We've, yeah. we've had that before. Uh, carry on, Robbie. Your list yeah, of so, do's and don'ts. Um, well, other things that I wouldn't want it to be... I find many films that are military-based, they often make the characters too jokey. Like, they're always joking, they're making jokes, you know, it, it gets a bit funny. But, like, it doesn't mean that, the, you know, you can alleviate the stress of the situation and action by not being jokey, but, like, being overly jokey, like, the military people in Transformers, I found, often were too funny. Mm. And here we had you know a case I mean? of The Rock kind of being this larger-than-life Superman who kind of took everything in his stride and never never came up against a challenge too great. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, I mean, good call on that one. I mean, they would just cut their way through armed militants in that opening sequence in Pakistan 
and there was yeah, no real sense of threat. You're absolutely right. They kind of joked their way through it. They infiltrated North Korea, and it was a big ha-ha laughing matter when Flint raised the G.I. Joe flag. I mean, come on. <laughs> You're right. Jokey yeah. soldiers, bad. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, just take it seriously. This is a serious situation. Your lives are at risk, you know? The comic does that really well as well. You've got characters like Breaker and Clutch who have things that they do that are funny, or say that are funny, and then you've got Snowjob who is a shit. So some of the stuff he does is funny um, with regards to the rest of the Joes, but it's not... I would like, avoid playing the comedy notes too hard, though. Mm. No, no, definitely. Yeah. Comedy, comedy yeah, is rather something... rather have it come out of character than out yes. of situation where you have to insert the, the humor. Have them be true to themselves, the characters that have been established. Exactly. I mean, uh, humor um, in, in most kind of situations like this, if you look at like ambulance drivers, for example, and, and uh, paramedics, sorry, that's actually the correct term, they have a sort of a sense of humor because they use it as a coping mechanism because uh, they see really horrible stuff every day. And soldiers do the same thing. They also have a kind of a, a humorous coping mechanism. It's not that what they're dealing with is funny, it's just that they do it so that they can deal with it. But it's not necessarily like jokes and fun and games and ha-ha-ha all the time. You know, it's, it's serious shit. You're in the military. It's not... It kind of paints the military as this, like, you know, this boys club that once you get past the really grueling, you know, basic... That it's all fun and everything afterwards, and it's it's not necessarily like that. It's discipline the whole. Excitement, that I praise, not these things. And then another thing, it's probably most people may not agree with. I don't want it to be too ninja. Thank like, you. you I agree. Have, you can have Snake Eyes. You can have Storm Shadow. You have aspects to them which are ninja trained, but you don't have to have the story focus everything on the ninja aspects of stuff. I'm gonna see if I can win you over on that score, buddy. By invoking, well, uh, invoking one of your filmmaking he- heroes, but uh, all that in in due time. Okay, well, you know, those are the main like shouldn't haves, and not that I don't like them, but don't have the dreadnoks. <laughs> <laughs> not even I don't for a need cameo. Drinking cola and purple you know, like Gra- grape soda, <laughs> grape soda and gummy rats. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Chocolate it just draws donuts. away from the military aspect of the film. I like the idea that they're military and well-trained. You don't need them facing up against a biker gang. Sure. I'm trying to find their merits because I know that there is a huge following for Dreadnoughts. Yeah, and definitely. I mean, you know, Paul loves the Dreadnoughts. And they come Cobra Special Forces. Well, there's a, a very formal military side to Cobra, and then there's a come-all-ye-takers. You know, if you are disgruntled, if you have an extra grind with the U.S. government, you are a friend of Cobra. And if that means that you're a biker dude with a crowbar... That's okay. You can you can assist the movement. So I think the dreadnoughts have their place, but you know they certainly do not function as a, a real threat against an organized special forces counter terrorist group. They're more like yeah, a I'd agree. A, they have a function. You know, you can use them for certain things, but they don't have to be going up straight up against the Joes. No, I mean, sure. I think that's often what Larry Harmer did use them for. You know, for like wrecking stuff, or is it diversion more certainly than they the, were as like the main focus of a mission? Certainly, the cartoon use them as frontline troops which would often you know butt heads with the Joes on a regular basis yeah. you know, they'd often yeah. be the Joes on one side blasting red lasers at the dreadnoughts on the other side blasting their blue lasers no speak or sight or sound of vipers or blue shirts yeah. it was like mm. the dreadnoughts with a de facto cobra troop yeah. which I disagree with and yeah no, I, I do agree with your point there Rob if I had to insert the dreadnoughts into like a real world setting for G.I. Joe I would 
I wouldn't have them as a like a bike again, so to speak. I'd just have them as Cobra's belief force. Like it's kind of like those are the special guys or their answer to GI Joe. You know, like it's a bunch of like maybe Vipers or seriously hard assed ex mercenaries and things like that who have joined Cobra and are quite loyal to the movement. And Cobra can afford them and is quite happy having them and gets them to do a lot of dirty work. And they wouldn't be a biker gang. They would just be Ripper Torch, Thrasher, Zartan, Xandar, Serena, and you know, Road Pig as codenames for a, an answer to what G.I. Joe is from Cobra. Yeah, like a bunch of mercenaries, basically. It's like almost like people they've hired and it's a group that works well together. Yeah. I think that's a good idea. <laughs> I think I would just insert them as Easter eggs. Okay. But once again, I will... <laughs> <laughs> insert them like an Easter egg, <laughs> <laughs> but once again, I'll, I'll get into that when I when I actually unveil my movie pitch. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> so those are the like the shouldn't have. So those are all things that I think a good GI Joe film shouldn't have. You know, too much sci-fi, Cobra Law, a rookie storyline, a renegades type storyline, too jokey, and the dreadnoks in their original incarnation facing up against the Joes. Those are things that shouldn't be in there. And no Sopento. <laughs> <laughs> My should have not I mean, they're not very specific either. It's just like, it's just the general feel of what a Joe film for me should be like. For me, a Joe film should feature as many Joes as possible. Even if there aren't the main focus characters. Like, whenever you have someone doing something, there should be a Joe. Like, you know, if they're hacking a computer or whatever, the mainframe is doing it. Or if they're having people taking care of their wounded characters, you know, it should be Doc or Lifeline. And then also, I like the idea, kind of like Black Hawk Down, where there isn't one protagonist, you know, like in the recent Joe films where it's Dookies or Duke or then Roadblock, where there's one main protagonist. Rather have the entire team be the hero, the good guys. I mean, mm. like, Back or Down did that really well where you had lots of characters which you were all rooting for, and you didn't have to have one guy be the focus of the film. I agree with you there. It's like what Brian Singer does with the X-Men. Although he never intended for Wolverine to be a main character, he knew very well mm. that the fan base loved Wolverine. So he made the film about the X-Men and got a lot of X-Men stuff going as a team and then working together. Okay, once again, it does kind of have that almost like new guy in there kind of attitude, but it wasn't necessarily a Wolverine film, although when you look back at it now you think, okay, it's Wolverine and the X-Men, but it was never posted as like, Wolverine's the leader of the X-Men. Wolverine's this because everybody just loves Wolverine. What they've done with the retaliation is everybody loves The Rock, so let's make The Rock a character that can be the main, you know, shizness. And don't get me wrong, I like the Rock, I think he's cool, and I like Roadblock. I don't think Roadblock is a leader, but whatever. I fear, Rob, you'd just be making another Black Hawk down, though, if you cast the well, net too could... wide. I think the strength of a really strong character-driven piece is to rally behind a single character. But, I mean, we can agree to disagree on this point. <laughs> I just feel it's a team, and it's nicer to see an entire team working together to achieve a goal. Obviously, mm-hmm. certain characters will move to the fore to be the focus points. Sure. But I just feel not focusing too much on one character throughout the entire film would just feel more authentic to, like, when you're reading the comics. Mm. Like, you know, there's a bunch of characters. Obviously, eventually, Snake Eyes becomes the, the main guy that they focus on. I mean, even the comics at, some, at one point were what Snake Eyes and the G.I. Joe's. Mm-hmm. But sure. um, I just like the idea of, a, of seeing a unit working together to achieve something. When you mentioned ninjas earlier, one of my issues with retaliation, although I love the ninjas and stuff in it, and I thought it was really cool, in the comic book, Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow are ninjas, okay? And that's mm. cool, because it's like vanilla ice cream. Ice cream. Vanilla ice cream is great by itself, but with a little bit of chocolate sauce, it's really interesting. As soon as you start putting too much chocolate sauce in it, then you have too much chocolate sauce, you don't really have vanilla ice cream, you just have chocolate ice cream anyway. 
the problem ice is, cream. <laughs> it's, it stops it from being vanilla ice cream, if you get what I'm saying. You know, it's nice yeah, to have the chocolate. Yeah, it from being a treat. Like, yes, you know, it's in exactly. there. It starts it's becoming the, the thing. And the thing is, now you've got all of these soldiers, which are really highly trained, which in a lot of ways are completely emasculated, castrated, actually, yeah. by the fact that ninjas exist. Now that there's fucking millions of ninjas, what are these poor soldiers supposed to do? I mean, these ninjas can, like, fart in the dark and nobody hears it. What am I supposed to do with my sophisticated submachine gun? The guy's got a ninja star! <laughs> exactly that. And that's where the ninja side... I mean, if you read Hanno's books, you'll see that Snake Eyes himself is not a fucking Swiss Army knife. He has problems. He doesn't manage to get out of everything scot-free. For instance, Quinn saved his life. I just read life. issue number... I just was flipping through volume two of uh, A Real American Hero uh, as reprinted by Marvel and then IDW. And Dr. Venom is quoted as saying the following. After caving Quinn's head in with a wrench underwater, hoping to drown Quinn, Dr. Venom reaches the surface and says, Now I have only snake eyes to deal with. Now I infer from that that Dr. Venom in his insidious ways, felt up to the task of taking on Snake Eyes. I mean, this is a, <laughs> you know, white lab coat wearing doctor with a wrench mm-hmm. versus an unarmed Snake Eyes. And yet he felt confident that he could take it. So in those early days, Snake Eyes was not played up to be superhuman. No, he had faults, he had weaknesses. He almost gets thrown out of a plane. In fact, he gets tricked enough to get thrown out of a plane. He's very lucky that he gets saved. There's lots of these instances, and it's great. He's not doing double backflips from one paralyzer tank to another paralyzer tank, slashing through battle android troopers and cobra ninjas like... But, uh, and then, basically, my last point is, I just want everyone to be authentically dressed and characterized, and I want lots of use of actual Joe and Cobra vehicles. Because yes. that's often the, the faults with the two live-action films we have so far. Mm-hmm. Often the characters didn't feel right and they didn't have enough vehicles, and they didn't look right. I mean, they looked like a military unit, but they looked like someone else's conception of what real-world military looks like. But Joe's, they're all very unique in the way that they dress and they look, mm-hmm. but they all work together very well. But you don't have to have them all dressing like an army unit. They are the G.I. Joe's. So, yeah, they're just authentically dressed so that you recognize them. You're like, yes, that is mainframe, or that is Duke or Leatherneck or whoever. And then you recognize the vehicles. Like, if they're fangs, they're using those, or they're using hydrofoils. And there's eagle hawks in there. <laughs> That's probably what was my biggest draw card to Retaliation was when they started showing some of the vehicles, I was like, okay, we're going to get some cool vehicle action in this. And there wasn't mm. really vehicle action. There were one or two vehicles in that you were like, yeah, that is a, you know, that's kind of like a his tank. And also authentically characterized characters. I mean, like, Firefly didn't feel quite right to me in that movie. Mm-hmm. You know, he was, he took his mask off, you could see who he was, they, he blew up stuff, but and also Cobra Commander didn't feel they just didn't get the characters right. They didn't have someone writing them knowing who these characters were based mm-hmm. on, like, years of comic books and stuff. Yeah, overall, I mean, they're very general points, but if I watch the film and they have all of this stuff and I'm, I'm very happy. Like, the story, it's not secondary, but, like, as long as it feels right, I'm, I'm happy. The Joe film just has to feel right. I just find with G.I. Joe's fandom, we all have our favorite characters. We all have characters we love, we all have characters we hate, and we all have characters that we just dislike, okay? And by saying that, it's just, like, the characters, like, even characters we hate, we think are cool to some degree, because we hate them so intensely, you know? And then dislike is, like, Shane, that's a guy, we don't even remember his codename. A lot of the fandom, in my experience, when I meet Joe fans that are not within our sort of immediate circle, a lot of them have their favorite characters, and they can remember what their favorite character does and all that stuff. 
and they don't always remember some of the big highlights in the G.I. Joe story. Maybe they remember some stuff from the cartoon, maybe the Weather Dominator or Pyramid of Darkness or like Order Cobra or something like that. But they don't think of Joe's stories immediately. They think of Joe's characters. And that's what G.I. Joe is. It's very character-driven. Those file cards cemented that in our minds for G.I. Joe. This is a thing about very interesting characters and stuff, you know. But when I was a kid, I never even knew about any of like I didn't know about the Weather Dominator and that shit. I just remembered Snake Eyes is really cool because he does this. And Destro is really interesting because he's like a weapons dealer. You know, that stuff is cool. So... When you say that the story comes secondary, I actually agree with what you're saying. Because, yes, a great story is important. I'm not saying that the story is not important. It's just much better character writing, character details, more important than the story right now. And Retaliation sort of went in favor of having a mediocre story over very badly developed characters who weren't actually the G.I. Joes, like, as you mentioned with Firefly. You know, for a change, gentlemen, I am in complete agreement with almost everything everyone said. I guess all that remains now is for me to pitch my idea. Are you ready? Brilliant. Let's hear it, my friend. Tell us your idea for your well, ideal G.I. Joe film. It incorporates a lot of the ideas that were spoken about. And the first idea, well, it spans a period of time stretching from the late years of the Vietnam War through till the early 80s. This would be set as a origin film much in the same vein as Batman Begins, is not the meat of Batman's story arc. It doesn't necessarily expose his greatest challenge or his greatest villain, but it shows the journey that he took to becoming the Dark Knight. So in many respects, this movie is about three men and the relationship that they had, starting out in those early conflict days in the long-range recon patrol. It tells the story of Lonzo Wilkinson, codenamed Stalker, Thomas Arashikage, codenamed Storm Shadow, and, <laughs> get this, Lawrence Beach, codenamed Snake Eyes. Lawrence Beach. Wow. Okay. No, no, that's, that's actually quite creative, yeah. I can't lay claim to this myself, but I must say I'm in complete agreement with the discussion that generated this name. It would be fitting to pay tribute to his creator, Lawrence being Larry. And the name Lawrence is not like some fanboy wet dream cool name, like Logan or Zachary or, or something. Scott, some or like Snake. You know, it's not a cool name. It's a plausible, very human name. And the surname Beach, well, what does Harmer mean in <laughs> Japanese? Beach. Oh, wow. I can agree with that argument because Larry Harmer loves doing word plays. Some words. I mean, but like I said, I, I cannot yeah. um, lay claim to that. That came from a discussion thread on I think Geo Joe Declassified. Oh, cool! Yeah, Joe Declassified. Declassified. Yeah, Joe Declassified is really cool. And uh, those boys did their research, and I think uh, by the end of the discussion, a lot of them were in favour with that name, and and I was one of them. So it opens with these three individuals attached to some very elite units in the Vietnam conflict in sort of the dying phases as Vietnam was becoming demilitarized uh, and you know, ev eventually culminating in the, uh, the fall of Saigon. 
it would open with that fateful mission where Snake Eyes or Lawrence Beach gets hit as they're trying to escape a very hot LZ. Stalker, aka Lonzo Wilkinson, being the squad leader, makes the call to dust off without him. And Thomas, aka Storm Shadow, disobeys the direct order and saves Snake Eyes' life. It sets up an interesting relationship between these three men. I mean, they're comrades in arms, but Snake Eyes owes Storm Shadow his life, and Stalker will forever be laden with the guilt of having sacrificed mm. Snake Eyes for the good of the team. Mm. And this sets up an interesting triad. And I think for a film to have a lot of heart and ultimately a message, you have to have one, two, or maximum three characters who you can really invest in and whose eyes the story unfolds through. And these are probably the three most compelling characters one could pick. They all have this shared history. They all have a wealth of material written around them. And I think it is a mistake of G.I. Joe filmmakers to try and cut their own storylines. And in so doing, only using the very most obvious and broad strokes Mm. of what G.I. Joe is. Mm. I think there's such a rich tapestry to draw upon that we shouldn't reinvent the wheel. There's a great story to be told, and the very pragmatic, ain't broke, don't fix it guy that I am, I say that's the story I want to tell. So anyway, continue with my pitch. Snake Eyes is discharged from the service with his injuries. Storm Shadow and Stalker see the conflict through. They both actually become quite decorated from the conflict. Meanwhile, Snake Eyes rotates back to civilian life, starting with the gigantic tragedy that is the death of his twin sister Terry and his parents at the hands of a drunk driver who is... Cobra Commander. Cobra Commander's brother. Oh. Brother Dan. I envision this scene unfolding perhaps in 1971 or thereabouts where you have Snake Eyes sitting at the airport getting the call from a very young Clayton Abernathy and and a ride from the airport to the hospital where he identifies the bodies of his parents and his twin sister and then a scene playing out straight after that which can play one of two ways he has brushings with the man who is set to become Cobra Commander and it could either be a very heated scene where this very disgruntled man obviously upset about the death of his brother sees the symbol of American military dictatorship seeing a Vietnam-era soldier standing over his brother's corpse and immediately a source of conflict between these two men. Or, very fatalistic Cobra Commander to be saying to Snake Eyes, you know, my brother was an asshole, he probably had it coming. I'm so sorry about all this. And I'm so sorry that the army gave you a kick in the ass, you know, rotating you back to civilization without a hope in hell another unwanted Vietnam vet from a very unpopular war. Let me offer you an alternative. Come with me. I've got a plan. I've got a plan to make America a better country. And that's an interesting and very unexplored avenue. Yeah, because they touched on that a little bit with that Snake Eyes declassified line. They did. They did. That uh, Snake Eyes and Cobra Commander, before they became Snake Eyes and Cobra Commander, went on a kind of a vigilante spree. Yeah. Ultimately ending with 
a choice. Yeah. That Snake Eyes could either kill the judge who sent Cobra Commander's brother off the rails, or could walk away, and Snake Eyes walks away. I wouldn't go so far as to tell that story, because while there's a lot of merit to it, it's not the G.I. Joe story that I want to focus on. I want to keep the focus squarely on Snake Eyes. Mm. So this early appearance of Cobra Command is essentially just a cameo, but it could be a really well-scripted, very interesting scene. If you have an idea of what's coming, it'll be one of those kind of Ra's al Ghul, Batman sequences, mm. where the philosophies of both men are exposed, and the distinctions between the two men's philosophies about how the country should be run, and how the armed forces should be run, and how things should unfold, both their senses of justice can be explained. And it's important for these philosophical points to be explained early on, because when I see Cobra represented in the media today, in films, in cartoons, I don't really know what their philosophy is. What are they trying to achieve? Mm. I think they've never really been able to fully explain as succinctly as perhaps the comic book appearances uh, what Cobra Command is all about. They're trying to improve things, actually. They're not just this evil terrorist organization bent on ruling the world. I mean, that's just an oversimplification. Yeah. There's a real basis for Cobra Commander and his, and his entire philosophy. And I think if you make that plausible, if you make this man able to, to point at you know, actual problems with the way things are, are working in the world and how the working man is downtrodden, if you can make these concepts relatable, mm. you'll have won an audience over and you'll have started injecting a third dimension into a very hokey Saturday morning cartoon one-dimensional bad guy. Mm. Anyway, enough about this scene. <laughs> this would be kind of one of my nerdgasm scenes where I'd say, oh, that's so cool. But then we'd continue with the cool and we'd follow Snake Eyes ultimately to taking up Thomas Arashikage's offer to go into business with him. The business of a ninja dojo. Oh, yeah. And I know I take your point about Giorgio not being too ninja-laden, but a ninja dojo in the mid-70s, snake eyes with long blonde hair and bell-bottoms, knocking on some gigantic, ornate Japanese door, and then being surrounded by dudes in, like, ninja geese. It's too cool. And it's kind of one of those necessary scenes, like they had in Batman Begins. It's the training montage. Our hero needs to be equipped for the challenges that he's going to face. And there are important story elements that need to be related in the Japanese sequence. Yeah. The furthering of the conflict between these characters. I mean, you've got Snake Eyes, who owes Storm Shadow a life debt. And then in those training sequences, Snake Eyes eclipsing his sword brother's abilities and his leadership potential. Yeah. Storm Shadow's uncle offering the future of the Arashikage clan to Snake, Snake Eyes, Eyes. Yeah. over Storm Shadow. This creates another layer of characterization which can be further espoused on and another complexity to their relationship ultimately Snake Eyes if we know our G.I. Joe canon he elects to not take over leadership of the Arashikage mm. out of deference and out of honor to Storm Shadow and that's when all the shit goes down Yeah, that is when the uncle is murdered mysteriously and Storm Shadow takes the rap for it that's classic part of yeah, Joe, that's like... And it's something that having them as children in Rise of Cobra, it didn't work. Yeah. Because you didn't have these adult men who are in a position to take on leadership of the clan 
yeah. now vying for its future, vying for power. It's so essential to our understanding of who Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow are. And they pissed all over it in Rise of Cobra. They had two kids fighting in a bloody kitchen. Yeah, which was like a cute little fight scene and everything, but it wasn't a story enough. It didn't give us the information that we need about yeah. these two men. The information that I hope in this movie pitch we can explore. Okay, as I said, this is a story about three men, right? Right now we are ignoring the third. Lonzo Wilkinson is Clayton Abernathy's first pick for the G.I. Joe team. A team which starts becoming more and more necessary. For those of you who don't know, the Arashikage clan dissolves after its leader, the Hardmaster, is assassinated. Essentially, it's a Cobra plot to try and exact revenge on Snake Eyes. The Hardmaster is killed mistakenly while he's impersonating Snake Eyes's vital signs. He mimics Snake Eyes's breathing and, I suppose, heart rate. And a Cobra operative armed with an acoustically enhanced bow and arrow using one of Storm Shadow's arrows is the one who makes the fatal shot, killing the Hardmaster, thus framing Storm Shadow and also implicating Snake Eyes. The whole clan dissolves after that because of the death of their leader and the suspicious circumstances under which both heirs to the leadership position now disappear. Storm Shadow joins Cobra in an attempt to determine his uncle's killer. So here we have a believable reason for him to join Cobra, one that was not espoused very well in Rise of Cobra Retaliation. In those films, it seems like Zartan just wanted to recruit Storm Shadow and did so by killing his uncle and then taking him under his wing. Mm -hmm. It's like, you have real potential as an operative. I'm going to to abduct you (laughs) and uh, bring you over to the dark side. No, I'd much prefer the scenario where Storm Shadow takes it upon himself to join the enemy, essentially, because he has a vendetta. He's going to piece together the puzzle that is his uncle's death. He's going to find the killer, and he's going to exact revenge. These are character points that distinguish Storm Shadow's philosophy to Snake Eyes's. Storm Shadow is vengeful. And these are reasons why Snake Eyes was selected for leadership of the Arashikaga clan over Storm Shadow. Because Storm Shadow is still a little bit hot-headed. Mm. Whereas Snake Eyes is a more balanced, more karmic individual. Yeah, he's more humble. Which is exactly why after the Arashikaga clan dissolves, he returns to America ekes out a very simple existence in the High Sierras and basically lives on his disability checks from the United States military. Mm-hmm. Which is exactly how his old buddy, Lonzo Wilkinson, a.k.a. Stalker, with Colonel Abernathy, mm-hmm. a.k.a. Hawk, they find him by tracing his veteran disbursements with paychecks and recruit him for G.I. Joe. I looked through 1982 on Wikipedia That year saw some very interesting things. For instance, it was the year that there was a rise in aviation disasters. One that, to my mind, speaks very clearly, almost like a terrorist plot. Global terrorism is on the rise, and it is of the opinion, the powers that be, the guys with brass on their shoulders and the lead in their pants, that there is an unseen power pulling the strings. 
This entire chronology has taken about 10 years. Snake Eyes left Vietnam in 71. It's now late 1981. And so G.I. Joe has been formulated as a very ultra-hush-hush, almost autonomous, highly trained anti-terrorist task force. They are super secretive, and they are able to move rapidly and without the kind of restrictions that larger military agencies and intelligence agencies would be hamstrung by. And Snake Eyes is exactly the man they need. I would imagine you would need somebody like Snake Eyes because if he's got all of his ninja training now, he's obviously somebody who, during his military service, was very reliable or very useful and you know proved his use. And it's probably for the same reasons that he would have been the retainer of the Arashikage clan, is he's somebody who just gets results, he gets things done. Maybe that's why, you know, they wanted him. And maybe also because Lonzo, in a small way, feels that he owes him something, owes him a better life, owes him the chance to do something, because they fought in a war where they didn't really make any changes. It does mm. actually cause a lot more shit. <laughs> yeah, mm. I like that idea, that it's, it's more almost like... Redemption, uh, yeah. Yeah, mm. Stalker, he feels guilty, it's like he wants to give him a chance to prove himself to be a proper soldier. Ironically, I find favour with that as well. And it seems weird to me initially that a favour to a friend is to bring him back into, into conflict. But for someone like Snake Eyes, whose entire family life has been one of tragedy, and now his friendship is now one of tragedy as well. You know, he's falling out with Storm Shadow and ultimately the destruction of another thing that he had so much invested into. He was invested in his family and his twin sister. They're dead. He was invested in the Arashikari clan and developing it and taking on its leadership. And, and then it torn from him. T- in, exactly. He, he's regarding himself somewhat as a bad omen and one that needs to be removed completely from anywhere he can do harm. Yeah. Stalker's trying to convince him that this is exactly where he can do the most good mm. and find retribution and find a purpose, a reason for living. It's quite possible that perhaps for dramatic purposes, Hawk and Stalker arrive in Snake Eyes' log cabin just as Snake Eyes is about to hang himself. himself. Lawrence Beach. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Well, yeah, I think it's very good. And also because you don't have to have like a huge focus on why did they choose Snake Eyes because I mean, surely they are also getting other people into the team. So it's not like mm. as huge a thing. I mean, it's huge character-wise. You know, like why did they choose him? But he's a well-trained soldier and you know the reasons we've mentioned for why Stalker chosen are good mm. I mean I assume the team will be getting other members as well absolutely I imagine this would be our further nerdgasm scene coming up where they bring a very unshorn scraggly dirty snake eyes into the pit and suddenly he's surrounded by high tech wizardry with flash and an extremely attractive very competent female soldier called Scarlet. Cue love interest. Because mm. <laughs> you've got to have one of those, man. And at least between Snake Eyes and Scarlet, it's real. It's not some bogus flirtation that Marlon Wayans has yeah. with uh, Rachel Nichols or some cheap thrill nudie voyeurism between DJ Cretrona and Adrian Peliki. It's real. It's steeped in a lot of history. And it's their respect as competent soldiers that start their romance. It doesn't come from some pervy moment or or just totally bald humor. It comes from the fact that in their early sparring, you know, because Scarlet is brought on as a 
hand-to-hand combat instructor because of her proficiency in that regard. Exactly. And that in an early kind of training sequence, she and Snake Eyes start sparring and he allows her to win. Very subtly, no one on the team would have noticed Snake Eyes throwing the fight, but he does, and she notices it. She knows immediately from his form, from his stance, from from all those things that are apparent to highly trained martial artists, that this man knows what he's doing and that he is every bit Scarlet's match, if not her better, her master. And yet, (laughs) in order to save face, similar to what he did with Storm Shadow, he allows her to win so that she can keep her place in the team as the most proficient hand-to-hand instructor type. Yeah, because... No, no. <laughs> You're so dirty, Instructor bro. type person. <laughs> Ish thing. She's good no. with hands. Oh, she's very good with hands. But, like, actually, that's a cool thing, because, like, snake eyes and hand job. <laughs> <laughs> but that's very cool, because snake eyes is always an outsider. You got the outsider angle to him in the Joe team, in the comic book, before Homer fully, fully establishes things. You've got Snake Eyes cleaning everybody else's guns. He volunteers to clean everybody's weapons. And Stalker actually asks Grandson, you know, like, why does uh, Snake Eyes always volunteer to clean our guns and to always, you know, serve as a weapon? It's like, that's simple, Stalker, because he doesn't want them jamming up when we're covering his ass. That kind of stuff would be very cool. He wants to, to be able to trust his fellow teammates' weapons. Yes. Which and is a very realistic concern to have. Yeah, and that, that in, a, in a weird way, that's kind of like Snake Eyes saying, although he trusts the, the guys that are around him, he doesn't fully trust them to be as meticulous with things as he is. So He, he is the consummate professional. Yeah, and that's the thing, you know, and you're always going to have that, that little bit of separation, you know, as well. With, with Even the in a super elite military outfit. I mean, let's face the facts. These guys probably all check and double-check and clean their own weapons meticulously. Yeah. Snake Eyes is just that much more meticulous. He's that guy, you know? Completely OCD. Which is why he probably was driven to suicide when he no longer had the strict discipline of military life. He was completely purposeless. Mm. And also, no family, no dojo, and no gun. And also, here you've got a, a character who also can't speak anymore, eh? No. No, he, oh yeah, you can still speak. I, I would... This is some controversy. I wouldn't make him the most personable, talkative Joe, but... I think, because this is an origin story, the culmination of the story, I'm going to jump right to the end because, I mean, let's face it, this will all play out like uh, a standard G.I. Joe affair from here on out. You know, Joes go after Cobra, and in the, then in some you know, gigantic conflict, or very subtle conflicts, but they're sort of one of their early ones, Snake Eyes is injured to the point where he loses his voice. And... I'd say a major character that we have some feelings for needs to die, and that character would be Stalker. Yeah. The buddy character. The character who is racked with guilt over the fact that he held Snake Eyes' life in his hands and was prepared to sacrifice him. That would work out really well. I think there's a payoff there that Stalker will sacrifice himself ultimately for Snake Eyes. And Snake Eyes will sacrifice himself for Scarlet, perhaps, and lose his voice in the process. That would be very cool, because even in the Real American Hero and the cartoon, we don't get a lot of Stalker, actually. We only get Stalker here and there a little bit. So, for all intents and purposes, he's pretty much dead. I mean, I dig Stalker. I think he's a great character, actually. It would certainly hurt a lot of fans 
but if it's handled correctly, it can be a very meaningful plot piece. And I think Stalker, his function is to be the heart and soul of G.I. Joe. Yeah. And I think if handled correctly, as I say, it can be very powerful and, and very necessary penance that needs to be paid. There needs to be stakes, and Stalker's life is one of the prices that needs to be paid. You could even throw it around as Stalker is assembling G.I. Joe, and Hawk is actually the first guy he recruits. He tries to recruit Snake Eyes and can't find him, and recruits Hawk, and then they track him down, and then Hawk becomes, the Hawk we know today, becomes, you know, general or whatever, after, you know, ah. Stalker's death and stuff like that, you know? It's, because it'll be too much to put somebody like General Flag into a movie, you know, like that, because... It's cool that we, we keep it kind of close and everything. And keep them named Joes that we have some sense of. General Flag is a little bit perhaps amorphous in, in fan um, consciousness. Exactly. I mean, the flag is named after the General Flag. He you died know. early on in the comic book run. There was never a figure of him in those early days. He, he's a kind of a non, non-entity. Yeah. Whereas Stalker is very firm in, in most fans' hearts and minds. Exactly that. Um, one element of chronology that I think is quite important is playing up Storm Shadow's rise within the Cobra ranks to being very close to the commander. Not close enough to strike, but close enough, if he carries out one last assignment, he will be able to finally have an audience with the commander. And that's when you can introduce things like Brainwave Scanner. I don't know, something about the Brainwave Scanner seems like it, it would find better place in a sequel. I mean, there's already so much yeah, story... Course in this kind of origin story, that plot divergence and using MacGuffin at this point, I think, would be a mistake. The well, beauty of this movie is the purity. It just deals with the origin. We're not dealing with Cobra, you know, having some grand scheme to take over the world. Yeah. What I want to see in this movie is Cobra Commander sending Storm Shadow on his one last assignment. And if he completes this assignment, then he will have the answers that he's been looking for. Yeah. Because Cobra Commander, over the course of this so period, to kill snake eyes, yeah. has determined that there is this growing concern, this anti-terrorist unit, which is becoming more and more aware of the Cobra organization's behind-the-scenes manipulation of world politics and terror. Because that's how I envision Cobra in this early movie. They're not overt. Yeah. They're not running around in blue pajamas, jumping out of airships. Yeah. They are... The usurpers. They are responsible for the Falklands War. Civil unrest. They are responsible for the war in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are events that are unfolding in the early 80s, and they are responsible for... Funding terrorists. For yeah. making planes drop out of the sky. Yeah. For instance, the flight that crashed into the 14th Street Bridge in Washington, D.C., and then landed in the Potomac. I would find it very interesting if that was ultimately a Cobra plot. Yeah. Because that very same day, there was a bombing on a Washington, D.C. subway. So we see global terror on the rise, and this is exactly what Cobra does. They instigate and incite terrorist groups to carry out schemes that ultimately destabilize the first world and the third world and push them more toward a collapse, which is a state that Cobra will then be in a prime position to take leadership after. I can embrace that kind of idea because that's something I've always, as far as a movie goes, I've always had that idea too. I love Cobra being a conspiracy. Something that people can't believe really exists. And, and one that requires G.I. Joe to be more of an intelligence-gathering unit yes. with some serious strike capabilities when they need it and less of a kind of, you know, boys club of dudes with guns rubbing around the desert, you know, killing 
Pakistani. Uh, yeah, I would love Cobra as a as a conspiracy. Like it, it's a complete secret organization. Uh, not a lot of people know about it. And coming back to your Storm Shadow idea, here he is close to the commander. And in a lot of ways, it'd be very interesting if he's kind of serving a role as a bit of a deep throat, in the sense that he's feeding this information, he's storing a lot of the information, a lot of things that he knows, and he's gathering sort of proof against Cobra Commander because he knows ultimately that Cobra is very well organized and that eventually. He might find the answers he wants, but he might die and his death will prove nothing. And maybe he's trying to get this information somewhere and he's putting it out there. And, you know, this is one of the clues. And how I would try to structure my story would be, you'd almost have two facets of this film. You'd have one facet is the investigative team. And the investigative team would be something like, it would be this character we know as Lady J and this other character called Chuckles. And they're part of, like, the intelligence bureau. They're not even, like, soldiers as such. They're part of, like, the CIA or something. And they've been finding these weird like sort of links to some of these terrorist uh, activities or some of the uprisings in countries and they can't believe that these things are happening they can't take it at face value so they start going in deeper and deeper they're doing it behind their superiors backs they're trying to find something extra they, they're not sure they don't even know gi joe exists they don't know it exists that's our secret gi joe as well so they, they're stumbling into cobra and you've got the joes who are getting a little bit of information leaks here and there from what uh, the CIA is finding and they're always like two steps behind and it would be cool if somehow these two stories sort of like start overlapping and that's mm-hmm. when they start finding out that Cobra really exists it's a real organization it's really doing these things these planes falling out of the sky are not necessarily like <laughs> things that they no no but are not necessarily things Paul, that Cobra, this is my movie pitch no but I'm not just going into it I mean, I, it's got a lot of merits it's got a, a lot of sort of born identity merit I suppose but we also have to be cognizant of the fact that this has got to be a feature-length film. Yeah, of course. Oh, of course, yeah. Like a mini-series. No, or I guess. a full series. I don't want to piss on your idea, but yeah. my focus is to keep this trio of men as your firm focus yes. for this film. And, and that's cool. I like that. I like having small characters that you can focus on you can get a real feel of who these people are so when introduce new people, it's interesting and it's exciting. It's sure, like, hey, their interactions with the established core yeah, characters. Exactly that. And I really love the idea of killing off Soka. Um, I think that would work so well. I think it would resonate well because now we have a character we like, we really dig him, we, and then he gets taken away from us and that's a good thing in storytelling because it creates a sense of loss in the audience. And Two plot pieces that I would insist upon. Uh, getting back to Storm Shadow's assignment, he is tasked with targeting and assassinating the G.I. Joe leadership. Mm. Cobra is so far ahead of Joe that not only do they know that there's this unit in its existence that is tasked with learning of the Cobra organization and ultimately stopping them, but Cobra is aware of information that would allow Storm Shadow to locate and eliminate their leadership. So Storm Shadow is dispatched on his mission, ultimately making him cross swords or knives or guns. I mean, I'm all in favor of Storm Shadow being a more adjusted, modern, for 1982, ninja he would use everything in this employ. There's no case of, like, being honor-bound to only use a katana because He's a ninja. that's the Arashikagi way. He is a modern ninja. Okay, so that's something that I would insist with Storm Shadow. I but you wouldn't have a case of Snake Eyes on one end of a corridor with an Uzi and Storm Shadow throwing mm-hmm. shurikens and, oh, balancing of power. <laughs> oh, I can't hit you with my shurikens and you can't hit me with your bullets. So let's lay down and which by the way, swords. which by the way is bullshit. Just the record because it looks pretty, but it's stupid. Any martial arts actually teaches you to use your environment as a weapon. If you can find something to hit your opponent with, use that something instead of using yourself because you know we break. And 
I've read a fantastic book about ninjas written by a guy called John Mann. He really goes into a lot of detail, and even there, they say there's no de facto ninja weapons. There's a lot of weapons that ninjas crafted to make their jobs easier, but they essentially used everything. And the first weapon they used was blending in. A ninja would be a guy that would come into your house, and he would be like your best friend, and you would think you know everything about him. And one day, you got a knife in your back. You find your whole family has been murdered, and you think uh, everything's cool, everything's fine. You wake up and you're on fire. Yeah, but, <laughs> but that's exactly it. Ninjas were that. That's what they were. They were professional assassins and spies. Their first mission, first and foremost, was to get information and get back. The second, when it came to killing somebody, they were taught to be very effective with that as well. There's nothing romantic about ninjas. There's no Bushido in ninjas. That's something that the movies, the G.I. Joe movies, get wrong. There's no Bushido in ninjas. There's no honor code. Um, uh, so this is a character development for Storm Shadow. Yes. He's thrown away honor. After his uncle's death and joining Cobra, he's, you know, to hell with it. I'm going to find my uncle's killer and kill the fuck out of him. Pretty much exactly that. Even if it costs my immortal soul, I will do this. Do this one last thing. Exactly that. He's completely wrecked with vengeance. And that is a powerful character motivation right there. Yeah. And one that we can rally behind. We can believe that. Yeah. Especially if you have the characters grown correctly on screen. You go, wow. Absolutely. Um, so getting back to yes, his assignment. Getting back to his assignment. Storm Shadow succeeds in infiltrating the pit. He is about to lay waste to, I suppose, Hawk maybe Stalker, you know, the upper echelons of this new G.I. Joe unit. But he discovers his old friend in combat. They begin fighting, and they don't know each other initially. But then it becomes apparent in their combat style, or perhaps in the way they move, you know, it starts becoming more and more obvious that, hang on, this is the guy who rescued me in Vietnam. Mm. This is the guy who took me in once my entire life had been shot to shit. And for Storm Shadow... This is the guy who usurped me, who took my place at my uncle's side, and who ultimately blames me for my uncle's death. So, once again, these interesting twists on a theme. The tortured warrior comes face-to-face with his tormentor. The tormentor comes face-to-face with the man who he owes a life debt to. And how their conflict would resolve. I think, ultimately, Storm Shadow would form an uneasy alliance with Snake Eyes, as he has done in the comic books, and hell, even in Retaliation. Yeah. They got that right, at least. Yeah, they that, I love that. They joined forces in order to defeat the ultimate enemy, the true killer. So, within the space of this movie, you have Retribution and Storm Shadow, in fact, joining the G.I. Joes, becoming an informant and allowing them to have whatever our final battle with Cobra would be. Yeah, sort of first blushings with the organized force behind all of this terror. Yeah. I think ultimately there needs to be some large armed struggle. Yeah, you I know, Cobra Commander would not, at this stage of his career, be in an easily... Easy to get to him. Yeah, it wouldn't be child's play to, to get to him, or he would be in a very secure environment... And it would allow G.I. Joe to make use of all their gadgets, weapons, arms, a lot of, once again, Easter eggs thrown in. A tomahawk, a mobat, a heavy artillery laser, all the cool early stuff, a jump jetpack. You know, I would essentially want to script the action sequences leading up to the final arm struggle to make use of as much cool tech 
a very necessary element, I think, yeah. would be to showcase, perhaps in an early training sequence, an XMLR. Yeah. Like, this is going to become a standard G.I. Joe weapon, but it's still... Connected it's to still, a backpack. Yeah, it's still got some, some quirks. It's still very clunky. It requires a very specialized trooper, a.k.a. Flash, yeah. to operate it. It's like we're on the verge of making something really special here that'll revolutionize you know, silent weaponry and larger magazine capacity than conventional heavy bullets. You know, you're going to have these sophisticated weapons, but they're, they're just not quite there yet. Like the jump is, you know, a most fantastic one-man portable aerial uh, insertion vehicle, but it takes a lot of training to get it right, right you know, yeah. because the controls are so complex. So Stalker's kind of got the knack of it, and uh, Grand Slam's got the knack of it, but the rest of the Joes, you know, you don't have the entire armada of G.I. Joes swooping down <laughs> with jumps strapped to their backs, backs yeah. blazing away with lasers, you know. These are things that are so cool and so necessary, and you need to play up their nuances. The fact that it is so early in G.I. Joe's inception, this technology is just not quite there yet. The challenges that they faced in getting this stuff to work, I think, is the intrigue that you perhaps wanted in your checklist there, Rob. You wanted as much G.I. Joe equipment as possible, but I want it to be, feel like it's earned, like it's a case of. Batman's uh, repelling gear, he needs to hone it before he can seamlessly soar through the sky. You know, he needs to knock into a few fire escapes first <laughs> and fall out of a window, crack his ribs. No, that that would be cool. Like, a lot of the tech is innocuous. It's like you're looking at normal vehicles, like things that you're used to seeing, like a Hummer or whatever, but it's got a whole bunch of tweaks to it, like a whole bunch of stuff that's like stuck on it or you know, things that they're doing to it, like, you know, while they're trying to design the vamp. And the Mobat is a pretty good example of that. Mobat's the standard tank, um, but it's what's inside that counts. Mm-hmm. And now I just want to bring attention to, I'm reading a book called Tales from the Cobra Wars, edited by Max Brooks, but it's got a whole bunch of stories by really fantastic writers like Dwayne Twerzewski. Uh Max Brooks writes a story in there, Chuck Dixon. And these stories are written so well and so real-world. That would be my reference point and... The Resolute Animation would actually be a good reference point for me as well in terms of some of the tone of what I would like to see in a G.I. Joe film. Because in that book, for example, there's a story there where Flint and Scarlet with a small military team are not sent in on a mission. They just sent in to provide protection for a scientist because what's happening is there's a base that's been doing R&D stuff for the U.S. government for a while and their funding's starting to get cut. One of the lead engineers has designed a, a mechanized suit like a cybernetic armor prototype. And he's designed some really amazing AI um, prototypes as well for drones and things. Flint and Scarlet are kind of going in there to assess certain things because they know that this place is in a bad situation. So they kind of want to make sure that these guys aren't selling it off to Cobra or anybody else. And the whole place goes to shit. And you actually find out, yes, this guy has actually been in contact with both Destro and Cobra Commander because his philosophy is that there should be no war. Soldiers, good soldiers... Uh, America's children shouldn't be dying in wars. Wars should be fought by machines. But these machines are now under Cobra Commander's control at one stage, you know, as part of a test run. And they, it's killing scientists left, right, and center. And it's it's cool because you've got a character like Flint is having his ribs broken. He's in a really dire situations. Scarlet is also, like, she's buggered. Um, we lose some no-name characters in there um, that they make up for the story, which are pretty cool. They die. They've got a character they call Teacher's Pet, which is quite cool. Um, no, but I mean, no, you know what? I think you can really be a little bit more cavalier with names, Joe's. I think 
we need a little bit more depth in the G.I. Joe-verse. I mean, no G.I. Joe canon is, is the be-all and end-all anymore. Yeah. I can't even use the word canon. Comic book continuity is picked up and picked apart and chopped and changed at will. It's not going to step on anyone's toes if you kill Lightfoot. Yeah. Udo, you know? Like, kill some real Joes. It's, it, it's never a, a line that you can't then go back on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the great. That's the great thing about having so many characters. You can definitely kill a few. For example, in Resolute, I mean, they kill one or two named guys. I mean, okay, Bazooka, but that's uh, because apparently Storm Shadow's dead by the end of it. Yeah, and we uh, ostensibly have Zartan, you know, get blown up. And it's cool to have that. It's it's good to have endings to characters' lifelines. And I just thought that this story, or not necessarily just a story, because I don't really want to spoil it for Steve or Rob either, but there's a really cool story where they use Skidmark, and there's some serious, like, James Bond spy stuff that goes on in that book, and it's really freaking cool. So you see it from both sides, Cobra and G.I. Joe. What's and the name of this publication called? Tales from the Cobra Wars. Tales from the Cobra Wars, listeners, yeah. get your copy today. It's really good, but for me, a lot of that tone is what I would like to see in, in a G.I. Joe movie, that more serious... Tom Clancy-esque feel, mm. you know, as well. It doesn't have to be so bubblegum. I, I don't know why... There's this understanding in the world of film where as soon as you adapt a comic book to, to the silver screen, that it has to now be, like, ten times more colourful and super explosion and explosive. It's the Joel Schumacher world of Batman. You know, we'd all obviously be more in favour with the Chris Nolan version. Exactly. And this is what I would hope to do with my concept for G.I. Joe is tell the origin story. It occurs to me, and this is a symptom of, of Larry Harmer's writing, being a very fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants author, he didn't have a plan when he started out. And out of that, he wrote an extremely compelling backstory, but it was always a backstory. We never started our story out back in there. So now that we have hindsight, now that we have all of this richness to draw upon, let's do a movie that starts at the very, very beginning. At the core. Before G.I. Joe even started. Before Cobra even started. Start out with these three men and take it from there. I think that is perhaps the biggest pearl of wisdom that I can offer from this entire episode. Yes. Of where I would like to see a G.I. Joe film take its point of departure. Because yeah, there's think, a compelling story yeah. to be told there. And we're just we're skirting it. We're reinventing the wheel. We are not using the very best that G.I. Joe has to offer. We're using the kind of most superficial of G.I. Joe. Put a guy with black mask and a samurai sword with the Arashikage hexagram. Use that. And like, make him face up against a guy dressed in white with the same kind of sword. And then have a bad guy with a silver faceplate. You've got all these icons, all this imagery, but you don't have a heart and soul of what G.I. Joe is. You don't have the compelling characters that these pastiches, these veneers, these like appearances need to be imbued with. If my white ninja has all this backstory, I'm going to feel something for it. And if my black ninja has all this backstory, I'm going to feel something for it. And if the guy with the shiny faceplate has this backstory, I'm going to feel something for it. And in that regard, the way I would ultimately like this story to resolve itself, and I've only just come to this now, is that Stalker dies. Storm Shadow... Well, to be honest... He's the mystery man. But I would want, at the end of this film, Snake Eyes to lose his voice in the conflict, and I want him to join Cobra. Snake Finally, Eye. discover that this is the man. This guy 
is the guy who made that offer to me when my sister and my parents died. And I want Snake Eyes, the linchpin of this piece, to be seduced by the dark side, as it were. I want him to see the merit. I want him to see the evil inherent in the American armed regime, and I want him to see the merit in Cobra Commander. I want Cobra Commander's philosophy to be that compelling. I want that to be a bombshell right there. I want that to be... And something that we can develop in a sequel, because it can always transpire that Snake Eyes was only siding with the commander to destroy his organization from the inside. But that, I think, this film is already groaning with detail. That's something that would have to unfold in a sequel. It would be like your kind of cliffhanger. It would be your Empire Strikes Back, Luke, I am your father moment. It would be G.I. Joe's ultimate Joe turning his back on his brothers and sisters and opting for what he, perhaps at that point, in his heart of hearts, thinks is a better way, or perhaps at that point determines that this is the way he can best serve his country and his brothers and sisters. But we don't know that. It's left ambiguous. I think that'd be great. I think that's a very cool idea. You don't always have to follow stuff exactly as in the And it's it's something different. It's, it's new. It adds something to it. Because this story I isn't mean, before, doing anything that hasn't been done before. Except that. It would be my little kick in the ass. All of this stuff, if you know G.I. Joe well enough, you've seen it all before. Perhaps not chronologically. No story has ever started at the very beginning and told this story. No story currently in existence, and I don't think any story we're ever likely to see will have Snake Eyes going to the bad. Devils do, do, do one thing with that. And um, recently IDW has done him going bad as well, but I don't know if it's bad as in, like, you know, it's a decision he made. <laughs> you know, they use the brain scanner a lot. Oh, no, that is the worst MacGuffin of all. It's like, we want to take away a character's motivation completely. We want to make this character not responsible for their own actions. Therefore, we're going to completely unmake this character. Mm. This is not going to even be a character. This is just going to be a robot. But um, apparently, uh, Rob, I think you might yeah. know this. Apparently, I think Snake Eyes kills a few characters. Uh, actual Joes. He kills some named Joes in IDW's whole thing with um, Snake Eyes. Well, that's some bold storytelling. But once again, it removes all heart and soul when you can just blame fucking brain scanner. Or some kind of mind conditioning or something. No, yeah. Listen, I haven't read it. The brainwave scanner cannot be your scapegoat. I hate it when it's used like that. It was so inventive when it was first introduced as a means to read someone's brainwave patterns and therefore read their mind. But then it became a brainwashing tool. And then it became so overused. It's like, this guy doesn't agree with us. Brainwashing. <laughs> yeah, and then you got the snake armor as well. It serves the same purpose. Well, at least you got a cool suit of armor that way. <laughs> we can talk about the Greenwave scan in another episode, but my belief is that it added something very cool and very necessary in its initial introduction, and then it just became a plot piece that, out of lack of creativity, we're just going to enlist the Brainwave scanner again mm. as our explanation for why this character is doing this. And that's my problem with our Russia Kage ninja techniques as well. They just also they use them as MacGuffins. It's like, oh, all of a sudden... You know, Snake Eyes can, like, do this, and now he's, like, invincible or smells like mint. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's always some kind of superpower that I just think is superfluous. 
in terms of storytelling. You don't need it. It's very important that we focus on these three characters. Obviously, we've spoken very passionately about Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow, for example, throughout this whole thing. And I know one of the things that we're all trying to avoid is to have a ninja movie here as well. So we we would definitely have to... Though there would definitely have to be some, like, cool retro ninja sequences. There would have to be, I'm thinking, like, Enter the Dragon kind of retro cool. Yes. Like, you can't set a movie in the 70s and have it involve ninjas and not play that note. I think it would have people cheering. (laughs) No, I agree. And that's when ninjas become cool. Yes, yeah, in the 70s, I mean, obviously with a lot of the martial arts forms hitting the West and becoming very big, and then the West producing its own martial arts form in the form of American Ninja, which is a, a guilty pleasure of mine. Okay, cool, honest. you're getting sidetracked. What, but, what anyway, you say? <laughs> but I just want to say, like, there's a lot of potential for other really cool characters to shine within this film, and for other cool twists to exist, like, for example, Grand Slam and Flash and... Short Fuse, a character that's actually not used a lot in the comic book, as you've highlighted to me as well, because I haven't you know, seen a lot of him. A lot of that stuff needs to come in as well. A lot of non-Snake Eye, Storm Shadow-centric kind of storytelling needs to come in as well, I think. Mm-hmm. I think um, I'm just worried that already, even in trying to avoid having too much Ninja Jammerama, we are getting a lot of Ninja Jammerama. <laughs> mm, um, I think you also need to firmly focus on Snake Eyes' place as being a sort of foot slogger grunt yes. trooper in the beginning, adopting this esoteric ninja lifestyle in the middle section, yeah. and then in the end section, him coming full circle and harmonizing these two elements of his of his training and becoming the ultimate soldier. Yeah. Not pajama, rama, banana, ninja man. No, of course. He's sort of dancing around on the tips of his swords. Yes. He's going to be the perfect harmony of these two schools of training. Yeah, you know no. the, the ultra modern high tech GI Joe military organization, and the ancient, you know, spiritual martial arts. Yeah, the the sort of esoteric martial arts side of it. Yeah. No, that's cool. I just to say, like, essentially, it is a GI Joe film, so good to focus on GI Joe as well. And insert some cameos too. Yes. When Rob spoke about him not wanting dreadnoughts, the point that I wanted to come back to was perhaps. At some point in this film, you have a, a soldier character, perhaps Stalker, returning from Vietnam after the fall of Saigon mm. in 75, I think it was, and he's hitching a ride on a merchant marine vessel. And aboard that merchant marine vessel, you have the man who <laughs> will become Torch later on. Yeah. Working with an acetylene torch, being foul-tempered, causing a fight, and Stalker sorting this guy out. Yeah. I think you wouldn't have to name him. The fact that he's working with a, an open flame or an acetylene torch and his very 1970s handlebar kind of moustache rocket look that would, once again, have fanboys just going ballistic in the aisles. Well, that's the thing that Brian Singer did with the X-Men as well. He put a lot of miscellaneous mutants and things in the background with powers that we recognize. Yeah, because yeah. we love that. We love it when we feel rewarded. Fancies. Rewarded for our insider information. Yeah. We know more than the average filmmaker. So, let us show that off. Exactly that. And then you'll have made a film that satisfies us rather uppity, nerd rage fanboy types. We're not that hard to please, actually. You just need to, to let us be smart asses. 
<laughs> and then you know we do let us show show off our specialized knowledge. <laughs> and then when they're talking about merchandising the figures, we make them release every fucking character, but Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow, so that we can sell some stalkers, <laughs> and you know them original thirteen and stuff. You know, I don't know, man. I think if you get a superb actor playing stalker, he could very firmly become like one of the ultimate GIs. Oh, totally. Roger. Um, Apart from the fact that he's a dead G.I. Joe. In the, the Transformers films, you know that military team that they have that you are so fond of? Those jokey dudes. The jokey dudes. Uh, I, yeah. So I find the jokey dudes of them, which, you know, is pleasant on screen in those films. When I saw Transformers the first time and I saw that team, I thought G.I. Joe. There's a lot of G.I. Joe-esque qualities to those guys that I liked. And it just it really irks me that a lot of that doesn't really come in either of the new Joe films. I get the jokiness, it gets a bit too much, but there is a seriousness to them, which is very cool. It is a very cool military side. I'm going to on that. I think the opening sequences of Retaliation felt like they were tapping into that you know, Transformers military team quite a bit. You had those very stock standard tough guy types. But there was a big black guy in the Transformers team. Yeah. There we have The Rock. Yeah. <laughs> You know, there was a kind of a, a good-looking poster boy, white guy calling the shots. There you have Duke slash Flint, although he wasn't really calling the shots. But my point is, it seemed like they were taking a leaf out of Michael Bay's book. Yeah, like, I, I get that. There were some ideas that were borrowed. I just feel there was so much that they could have borrowed more <laughs> from. No, they just need to make my goddamn movie. Mm. It might take 20 years to make. What's the timeline between... Joel Schumacher's Batman and Robin and Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins. It was 96 or 97? I think thereabouts, 95, 96. Mm. Batman and Robin. <laughs> you know, flash forward to Batman Begins. Yeah. Mm. I think it's 2002, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. And then it took a little bit of time oh, between oh. them, you know, about, what, three years in between each one? Yeah. So a, good, a good eight years for filmmakers to finally treat a franchise with the respect it deserves. I would also use a lot of Peter Jackson's technique. I don't love Lord of the Rings, but I don't think that they're bad films. But I definitely think that Lord of the Rings helped to establish a working trilogy in filmmaking. Now, I say this because Star Wars, as great a trilogy as it is, is not really a trilogy, okay, for starters. And secondly, it just really worked. Because since Star Wars, very few trilogies actually worked. And I feel that Lord of the Rings said something up that was really good, in that... It introduced core characters, like Stephen was mentioning, um, having in our G.I. Joe verse with Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow and the, sort of, and the interplay there, and some great um, secondary characters, which will essentially be the, the rest of the Joes and some of the Cobra leads, etc. Then you could have the second film, which you know you could introduce more characters, introduce more of what's actually happening, because now you've established so much in the story, without it being a sequel, and then you could capital for the, the third form, which is essentially the end of the trilogy. But once again, you, you have a lot of core characters that have either come and gone, died, with some great battles. You can actually build up to a great battle. I feel that a lot of trilogies, either the, the good ones seem to follow that sort of Lord of the Rings mentality by filling the bucket up a little bit by little bit and then emptying it out and then filling it out a bit. And then some just tend to go, okay, fuck it, it's a second form now, we have to really outdo ourselves. And that is why The Matrix as a trilogy fails because it's not really a trilogy it's a 
It's two really crazy action-packed sequels put on the tail end of a really cool, thought-provoking film for its time. That's where I would want to go with a G.I. Joe film. I wouldn't want to call it a G.I. Joe film, I'd like to call it a G.I. Joe trilogy, so that it can be told within its own canon and focus on some strong core story elements and bring that all in. Uh, I'm sure many of you have read the comics. I'm sure a lot of you haven't really read the comics, but there are some amazing things that Cobra does to cause uh, anarchy. Amazing and things. And this would be a great point of departure because at this point, everything they've done is extremely subtle. Mm. That there is a place for them to go from here. They're not firing projectiles and wiping out London. Exactly. At this early stage, their manipulations are just that. They're behind the scenes. They're shadowy. They're responsible for Israel finally pushing the button and invading Lebanon, pushing the PLO out. They're responsible for the Argentinian Navy firing upon and sinking British warships. They're responsible for Korean airlines overstepping the Soviet airspace and being shot down, and the American response for that. I mean, all these flashpoints that ultimately push the superpowers into more and more instability and, and closer to waging war on one another, all further Cobra's goals for sowing global destruction and, and instability and, and plunging the world into chaos. This is why setting it in the early 80s is so essential and, and such an important plot piece because it's an exciting time for these things to unfold. You know, with the Soviet Union still being in, being in existence, there's so much potential. Did you know that in 1982, the world's first computer virus made an appearance? So there's a, a, a plot point to be had there. I mean, Cobra could be responsible for that. In 1982, Time Magazine's Man of the Year, for the first time in history, was not awarded to a human being, but it was awarded to the computer. <laughs> so there's something very hokey and very cool and very retro, avant-garde and kind of forward-looking, very uh, clairvoyant about setting it in those early years and kind of having transcendent technology that we are all too familiar with now being something that wars are waged over then. It's so fucking cool, sorry, if, um, for example, Flash has, like, a, a nephew who's, like, an aspiring filmmaker, and he gives his nephew these ideas about cool things, you know, because his nephew's always bugging him about stuff in the military, and, you know, he must know secrets, and he tells him stuff, and that nephew ends up being, like, Steven Spielberg. <laughs> or something like I think Spielberg was making movies in 82 right? no he was no definitely he definitely was but um, that's like you know that's like Steven Spielberg made Jaws in 78 79 yeah, exactly. and then w what the film that followed you know the film that followed after Jaws was Close Encounters you know and that kind of thing you know uh, I would like to see Stalker bringing the first CD player into the pit yeah. the Sony I think it was called CD CDP one, yeah. <laughs> and and like setting it down and taking out a copy of Michael Jackson's Thriller, yeah. <laughs> or something like and that, and playing that because I mean, okay, that was released in '82. It went on to be the you know, best-selling album yeah. of all time, and the seat like the compact disc, like this is like outrageously cool technology. But back in '82, it's like yeah, it's, it's cutting edge, and they have like communication devices which are like really like quite tiny for the era and um, short fuse or somebody could be like wow this is a lot like my uncle or whatever his cell phone and it can be like yeah we had to eventually release it you know like that's military tech you know or like you know <laughs> we were using cell phones five years ago boy you know kind of thing you know like it'll be cool if they had like those little nods like a lot of 
technology that they're using is like sort of finding its way into the mainstream, but it's five years later. I think we're all in agreement that uh, there would be so much fun to be had by setting it in the 80s. By having it retroactive, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And the Lamborghini Cheetah forming the basis of a vamp. Yeah. Oh, please, give us a real vamp. Please, please, please. It would be a very big film to make if it was to tell all this personal story and yet still shoehorn all these other elements, all this technology, all these cool little, little Easter eggs and whatnot in. Yeah, I would need some extremely talented editing. Totally. But uh, I think there's a terrific movie to be made, if I do say so myself. I mean, of course, this is my brainchild, but it is a combination of what Joe creator Larry Harmer injected into his world. After a lot of consideration and a lot of, like, complete strokes of genius that were completely unprecedented. It's not like he sat down and scripted this whole thing 50 issues into the future and then started writing from issue one. He made it up as he went along and he made up some gems. Now we just need a film franchise that takes cognizance of those gems and doesn't just pay them lip service by using, you know, the broad strokes iconography, but actually finds the tangible three-dimensional characters fashions their relationships and makes them the heart and soul of the G.I. Joe movie. This, basically, that's all I have to say about that. That's, that's my critique of Retaliation, Rise of Cobra, et al. This is the movie that I want to see and I'm going to start scripting it immediately. Expect a screenplay, first draft, uh, you know, by the end of the year. <laughs> Hasbro, I hope you're listening. Yeah, I mean... Hire me. Do it, do it and now. my friends. <laughs> yeah, but there's no Sopento in any of our uh, ideas, which is great. Um, <laughs> That's a good thing. The ninjiness is kept at a certain level, which I think is very good, which, which I think is where it should be. The technology is there, but it's not completely over-the-top sci-fi. You know, it's not many yeah. black. You know, it's a little bit James Bond, which is good. The film is not about one person, which is also very good. And it uh, look, ultimately, is about one person. Yeah. It's about three, but ultimately one. G.I. Joe is so starved of a protagonist. You know, we wind up following the exploits of, like, a second-tier character like Roadblock mm. because he can speak. I mean, Snake Eyes is the protagonist of G.I. Joe. Stop forgetting that. Yeah. Stop trying to bury that. If it means that he has to be able to speak then I'd say that is a price that I would gladly pay mm. if we can have, finally, the rightful place of the protagonist. Because I'm about to like say that if you don't make Snake Eyes your protagonist, then you should probably follow the exploits of Cobra Commander. Make yeah. this a Cobra story. That would be an angle... Because there's a real protagonist that you can use. Yeah. Anyway, so that's a wrap on episode 25. Hope you enjoyed it, G.I. Joe Burgers. We'll catch you in a few. We promise. Few days. Few days. Not weeks. <laughs> days. Um, well, maybe weeks. Actually, definitely not months. Not months. Few days. I know. Weeks. Not. not months. So long, listeners. See you in a Cheers. few. Yeah. A few times. <laughs>